Hello everybody, this is Michael Hollands once again for Film Music Media. Today I'm talking to none other than two-time Grammy Award winning and Golden Globe and Academy Award nominated composer and music producer Harold Faltermeyer. Already in the late 70s, Harold had made a name for himself by for instance collaborating with Giorgio Moroder, either writing or producing songs with him for artists such as Donna Summer or arranging music on films like Midnight Express, Foxes and American Gigolo. On American Gigolo, Harold had met producer Jerry Bruckheimer, which ultimately led to Harold writing the score for Thief of Hearts, which was also produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, the produ producing team for which Harold would later write highly iconic scores for Beverly Hills Cup 1 and 2 and Top Gun. For those movies he wrote two of the most recognizable themes of the 1980s. Besides his large film score credits of Beverly Hills Cup, Top Gun, as well as Tango and Cash, The Running Man, Fletch and Cuffs, Harold also worked with some of the most high-profile artists such as the Pet Shop Boys, Donna Summer, Billy Idol, Jennifer Rush, Bonnie Tyler, Melissa Manchester, Laura Branigan, Barbara Streisand and Udo Jürgens and many others. This year we'll see the release of his autobiography as well as the premiere of his new musical. Welcome Harold. Hi Michael. Um, Harold, at first I would like to hear more about your musical training and education. Right. So, I mean, it all started um, with the fact that my family um, was always surrounded by music. My, my father was a very gifted piano player. My grandpa was a very good violin player. Um, however, they've been never pros. This is, was, was all an, an amateur playing, but they were really good. So as a kid growing up, I saw, I saw music and I heard music in our house all the time. And this created the urge to to um, do music. So I got so I asked my dad, "Can I have like piano lessons?" So he was pretty happy about that, and um, so I got piano lessons. The problem was that with um, every lesson you have to study and you have to learn, and this was not really my piece of cake. So up until now I'm not a really great piano player because I just didn't want to 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 practice so much but um, I found I found out that it is a destiny for me music is a destiny and um, by having the the lessons um, my my teacher found out that I always I always listened to to the music and I played it back in the right key so he said you have to I don't know maybe or maybe not. He has perfect pitch, so um, I got I got checked uh, by a professor of friends of ours who was a music professor in Nuremberg, and he 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 testified that I have perfect pitch. So this was a great a, a great uh, uh, news for for the parents, you know. And so it all it all led to one thing led to to the other. So I I started to be more musician and more and more while my my uh, my background and my my whole school education suffered um because i did just i just did music so it all it all uh, collided uh, at some point and i had to leave school i was i'm so i'm a really a real school dropout but i managed to to get uh, accepted in the munich um, music college 
And so I, so I did study eight, eight semesters of music in Munich. And um, this was, this was um, a very unique thing because I, don't, I didn't graduate, you know, and of course I couldn't graduate in, 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 uh, on the college. But I studied trumpet and um, intensified my skills in piano and learned a lot about, about music. And parallel to that, I, I got a job at Deutsche Grammophon Gesellschaft as a sound uh, engineer first as a technician and um, these two these two professions music and engineering was a very very good pairing obviously it was pretty unique back then today it's it's a common practice that 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 uh, musicians are sound engineers or, or know about uh, all the the software instruments they are on the market these days <clears throat> but back then it was unique and this was my start into my musical career. Great. Um, Harold, when was the uh, transition to your work with uh, Giorgio Moroder made and how did you two work together? It all happened <clears throat> back in uh, s roughly 77. Um, he, did, he had a studio a little north of our studio. It was like two miles apart, these two studios. And Munich is a pretty small um, music market or was was a pretty small music market and of course he heard of my work in the in the, in the studio it was then it was called Arco studio and um, because we had an engineer Jürgen Koppers who who um, unfortunately died a couple of years ago but he he worked for Giorgio and he worked for me as well sometimes so he told the stories and he told Giorgio there's this kid you have to probably check out at one time. He's he's crazy. He's 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 behind the the, the mixing console. On the other hand, he he has strings outside. He he conducts strings from the console, and um, he plays he plays uh, um, all this all the keyboards and, and synthesizers. And you might want to check him out. So Giorgio, at one point, Giorgio called and said. Um, could we have a meeting and maybe work together? And I said, of course, I'm very honored because he was a big, big, and big producer and he was very successful already. And so he called me over to Musicland Studios and the first thing we did together was Mid and Express. Okay. Um, I think in 1979, if I'm not mistaken, you were involved with the uh, Bad Girls album. Right. Donna Summer album. Um, how would you describe um, your experience with Donna Summer and, well, the working process on for this album in particular? It was interesting because um, it all came together because of the fact that um, Casablanca Records tried to produce a album with Donna with all standard uh, hit songs or with some standard hit songs in in, a, in some kind of disco sound. So Giorgio called and said, you know what, give me a couple of demos of, um, and I know I recall, the first thing was Don't Cry For Me Argentina. So he said, make a disco version out of that because, because we're going to try that with Donna. So I did, and the outcome was more, more, more as lousy. It was not really good. It was not, it, and it, of course it was not a really great idea. And he said, but, but you did did quite a good job. Maybe you maybe I take you to Los Angeles um, to do Donna's to arrange Donna's new album. I was of course very very happy about that announcement. And then Donna came in and said, 
I know you. And I said, well, of course I know you. And, and she said, how, how, and I said, well, how could you know me? So she said, you know, when I was in, in Munich at the first time um, playing, uh, playing a, a role in the musical Hair, um, at night after the show, we used to go to a club in Munich. And I, I recall that you played there. I said, yeah, it was the Tavern. It was a very famous club where the GIs met back then. And I was playing, I was playing organ then. And then Donna came in sometimes, and and she and she sang with us. She sang like Aretha Franklin songs or something like that. And um, that's how I met her the first time. And um, so I got called into into uh, Los Angeles, um, and we started with Bad Girls. And um, I was just hired solely as an arranger and keyboard player. But Neil Bogart, head of Casablanca Records, made an announcement, and he said. We want to do a uh, double album, a um, double feature album like we did before, and she's going to be the first artist who has like two consecutive um, double albums on the market. Her first one, her first double album was Life and More with the hit MacArthur Park on it. So she, um, she's, she agreed to that, Georgia agreed to that, but the problem was they only had 12 songs for a single album. So, where to get the songs from? Georgia said, well, um, Harold, just go to a studio and try to write something. I cannot, I cannot promise you if Donald's going to take it, but we, we desperately need songs. So, I went to a studio together with Pete Bellotti and uh, Keith Forsey, and the first thing we wrote there was Hot Stuff. And, of course, then I was not only a keyboard player, I was a songwriter. And this was a very, very lucky punch and a lot more to come. Great! I love the Bad Girls album, and uh, Hard Stuff is definitely one of the one of the standout songs on that on that release. I really like that one. Yeah. Um, when compared um, to a film score um, deadline, how much different would you say is the experience working on a pop music album in terms of pressure and deadlines? Well, basically, for for a, for a movie for a score, you never have time. And this was a little, little um, <clears throat> better back then when I started doing music because you were, we were not, you were not in a digital world back then. You had the, the 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 movie on film, and the music was on magnetic tape. So whatever you played for the for the for the producers and for the for the director had to be transferred to magnetic uh, t uh, tape with the sprockets, and. Um, then it had to be synced with the picture. So it was a process where you had some time to breathe. But in today's market, everything is digitized. So a director um, will make his own cut in the evening after he, shoot, after he shot all day long. And then the next, the next thing what happens, you get, you get the, uh, the, the finished scene in the evening, and he and he expects you to to have the music finished by the by the next morning. So this is pretty crazy. It's a very crazy schedule, and um, of course the pressure is high. And um, since you are called in at the point where the movie is more or less ready, there's basically no time left for 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 briefing. You just you just have to do it. You have to work day and night. And um, to make it work, for example, with Top Gun, there was a scene. I just saw Top Gun, funny enough, uh, a couple of weeks ago because they had like a 30, 30th uh, anniversary 
downtown LA, Brookheimer invited. And so I saw Top Gun again and, and, and I, I, I looked at the scene where, 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 where Tom Cruise's partner dies while he hits his, his head on the canopy yeah. of the jet. <clears throat> and there's this music which is later called Memories. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember when I did it, it was, it was like I had a demo with a, with a synthesized guitar back then with a very, very simple uh, sampler and just a really cheesy guitar sound, so to say. And um, I, I played it for Brookheimer and he said, great, give it to me. I said, no, 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 Jerry, we need to take, to put, put a guitar on there. He said, I know, I don't have any time. And of course, we don't have the money and uh, give it to me. I said, Jerry, this is a demo. So actually, we ended up using the demo in the, in the movie. So you see how tight scheduling is. Crazy. Um, the the memories piece was actually only uh, released on the special edition Top Gun soundtrack. It wasn't exactly. in the um, initial recording. Um, and you met Jerry on on American Gigolo, right? Exactly. And and how did the um, the co- collaboration with him and Don Simpson come about? Um. So I mean, I must I must have left some mem- some memories, pro- obviously good memories from from uh, from American Gigolo. So one day in '84, Brookheimer called and said, um, "Look, we are doing a movie. Would you like to do the score? We would like to have you do the score." And I said, "Of course, I, w- I would be very honored." He said, "The only thing is, we need you. We need you immediately. We have to we have to do this this thing." And I don't know. Maybe they have hired the they have fired the, uh, uh, the previous composer, I don't know. But anyway, I got called in and um, so a couple of days later I find myself in Los Angeles um, in a cutting room and looking at FIFA Hearts. So at that time, Brookheimer Simpson were already called the Golden Boys because yeah. they were so successful, they had their own, they had their own uh, lot in the Paramount lot. It was like an own building, and in fr- I remember in front of the building there were two Ferraris, two black Ferraris parked, <laughs> and this was the Don Simpson Cherry Brookheimer production office. So they were larger than life. I mean, so they could do it. they could do anything. Thief of Hearts, um, unfortunately, was not a success. It was a flop. But obviously, I did I did good music, and and um, in the middle of producing the the music for the movie. Jerry came up and said, "You gotta meet the, the the director of our next of our next movie, Martin Brest." So I said, "I'd be happy to." So I said, "What's the movie about?" He said, "Yeah, it's a comedy. You know, it's totally different than than the Three for Hearts movie, but and of course it needs totally different music." But I first wanted to meet the composer, uh, the, the, the 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 director, and um, then you will see. And I have to see if you guys like each other. Then we can go from there. So. I go over again and uh, to Paramount and uh, met Martin Brest. We obviously liked each other, and I got the job for Beverly Hills Cop. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard several times that um, Don Simpson and Jerry Brookheimer could be very detail-specific and demanding. Um, how would you describe your uh, work relationship with those two, yeah, well, powerhouse producers? Well, this is the truth. Jerry and and, and Don turned every stone every minute and every second. So whatever we did was in question. He always questioned um, the sounds. And of course, he knew 
feedback from, from my work with, with Moroda that I can be very, very fast. I can really, and I had my, I had my stuff together. I had, I had a great setup for working. So obviously these were, these were the beginnings of, of MIDI, MIDI uh, um, uh, um, routing. So actually you could change any sound on the fly. Mm-hmm. So that's this was the this was the beauty for them, you know. And then I, I recall Don Simpson saying, you know, we always like to come to the studio because this is the fun part of the of the of the movie to see how the music is done and of course um, make suggestions what and and try out things we never can try out with with um, with um, shooting because it's just too too expensive. So of course they they could be very very annoying sometimes because you changed you had to change everything they, they, once something was finished and Don looked at Jerry Jerry looked at Don Don said what do you think Jerry said I don't know Don said I don't think it works Marty Bress said hmm, can we try this can we try that and they could drive you crazy but at the end um, most of the times they were right because turning every stone leads to a um, uh, uh, variety and and uh, unexpected sound combinations, and sometimes that is really really interesting, and that's what it was. Um, the first Beverly Hills Cop and the second one as well are basically two of my favorite movies of the nineteen um, eighties, and there is something that has really always interested me. And I've got a I think a good question: When the first Cop was, was released and the soundtrack album followed, only um, Axel F was featured on the on the album, and no additional score pieces were included. And on Beverly Hills Cop 2, actually, there was no score at all, whereas a score or your score for Thief of Hearts had multiple score cues, like four or five. Is there any um, rational explanation as to why? Score, uh, some albums had, were more song-oriented and had one piece of mu- score music and others had more? Um, yeah, it, it was due to the fact that back then um, soundtracks were selling enormous. We had, we had million and millions of records sold with soundtracks. I mean, all the big things like Saturday Night Fever or whatever, they sold millions. And of course... Um, we had a a company uh, for releasing the soundtrack, which was MCA Re- MCA Records, mm-hmm. with uh, its um, CEO uh, Erwin Asof, and, and Erwin Asof made a clear clear announcement. He said, "I don't want to have a score album. First of all, I paid too much money to get the to get the soundtrack. I want to have hits. I have to recoup." I was I was pretty annoyed by that by that uh, statement. So I said. But there has to be something of the score on the soundtrack. So his response first was, "There has to be none of the score on on the soundtrack. Um, we might do you a favor and, and and get you a spot that you can do one one little piece of score on the soundtrack." So I said, "Yeah, well, thank you then." And um, um, I talked to to Don and Cherry, and, Don, and they said, "Well, of course, there has to be some some." some uh, music of the of the score on the on the soundtrack but on the other hand of course we understood Azov because he wants he wanted to have a hit a hit record and pieces of score is not really that what you what you would call a hit record and back then of course nobody knew that the the, the, the tremendous uh, success of Axel F 
basically, and then afterwards helped the movie to sell. So um, I got a chance to to collect pieces of the score and made like a puzzle. Axel F was never a, a piece of music. It was a puzzle. I just took different different pieces of of, of the of the single cues mm-hmm. and just and just uh, tied them tied them together. Yeah. Made a mix out of that, and this was Axel F. And he said, "Yeah, I'm putting it on, and you get a second chance. We just do shootout, which was like a another piece of music which didn't make it to the album, but made it to almost every B side of the of the of the single releases out of that uh, soundtrack." So. Axel F was scheduled to be the B-side of a Petit Labelle song of, of New Attitude. And as we said back then, in no time the record turned around. The B-side was the A-side and the A-side was the B-side. And of course it was the first, the first uh, days of doing remixes. So we had a uh, couple of guys doing remixes. So Lucilas did a remix of, of Axel F. And then all of a sudden it, it became a big, big, big club hit. And I definitely proved Ace of Wrong that, that he said that scores are not selling. I mean, this was a big, big, big thing. And as a matter of fact, Axel F was the was the was the most selling single release out of out of all the uh, um, single releases we had out of Beverly Hills Cup. It was a huge hit, and it's in a sti- in a song, still so very popular um, oh, yeah. t- today. And um, I think every it's one of those pieces. I think everybody knows. Um, even if they are not too familiar familiar with the film, but if you play the, the yeah. piece, they will go, "Oh yeah, I, t- I totally know that one." Um, one of the pieces which were also missing uh, was um, it was called the um, discovery, the the scene in which uh, um, Eddie Murphy discovers the cocaine in in the on the coffee grounds, and uh, it, it was also a piece which I would have liked to to have on the uh, which I would have liked to to hear on the the um, soundtrack album but unfortunately due to the circumstances you just mentioned it was impossible yes it it it, it unfortunately was impossible and believe me I'm getting I'm getting uh, mails up to today uh, um, saying when do we get this music released and when do we get when do we get like discovery when when they when they like you said when they discovered the cocaine in the warehouse why was this never released i'm getting so i'm getting so many so many mails about that and the good news is that paramount um changed his his uh, changed their mind to release the entire score now so actually in 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 uh, fall it's it uh, Beverly Hills Cop one and Beverly Hills Cop all the scores are scheduled for release great. and it, uh, that's really great and this is something my fans have waited now for for decades already I, I don't yeah, know how, tell how, me how, about thousand, that. how many thousand mails I I have collected about about that matter and <clears throat> it is I, actually I tried to release the soundtrack to to, to release the scores. And I, I requested a couple of times um, a license to, to do that. Paramount always denied. But now they obviously changed their mind, and that's a, that's a great thing, I think. And I'm really happy about that. Absolutely. I mean, it's about time, actually. I mean, there are a couple of uh, soundtrack labels that have released a substantial amount of scores, right. which, which never saw the light of day beforehand, before that. And um, I was saying to myself for years, you know, why on 
Earth is nobody releasing, you know, Cup 1 and 2, because there is obviously potential, the fans are, um, you know, the fans basically want to hear the music, They're, they want to buy the music, and I'm ab absolutely happy now and thrilled that um, those scores are finally released in their entirety. Right, now it's gonna happen, it's, it's, it's really great news. It just happened. It just happened recently. I just got. I just got the word like a month ago. Great. That's that's really good news. Um, I've got one more question about Beverly Hills Cup Two. Um, back then, the director had changed. The first one was directed by Marty Brass, and the second one was directed by Tony Scott, um, who, whom you had worked with um, one year before on Top Gun. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that Tony's? Um, Tony had the main direction, main influence on in how the scores have to sound, or did you, did you feel that Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer had were recalling the shots in terms of composition and sound? Well, I mean, the two movies are completely different, as you can tell. Yeah. <coughs> the first one is more towards the comedy. It's and it, this is this is of course because of the, the the talent of Martin Brest. Martin Brest had a had a a very very fine sense for for comedy yeah and for for little details how Eddie Murphy was playing the role and how this whole how this whole thing got got put together on um, uh, 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 Tony Scott is a total different or was a total different director mm -hmm. he was very visual Tony Scott had the the best eye I think ever um, if you look at Top Gun how this is shot the the um, the, 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 the camera um, work and all that it's all visual so cop 2 obviously was was very visual was a very visual uh, uh, movie with with uh, fast cuts and and and, and uh, f fast scene changes and of course although we used uh, a lot of Beverly Hills cop 1 um, from the score we we used a, a total different um, scoring technique uh, in the new stuff I put on like you like the like you look at the first the, the robbery at Adriano's um, where you have this very hard driving rock and rollish kind of music which yeah. which never could have made it in, 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 in cop one because it's a total different story and Marty Brest would have shot this robbery completely different if he even would have shot it you know but that's the that's the way it is and of course you have to adjust your, your work um, accordingly to to the work of the of the of the uh, director. Okay. Um, in the late eighties, you did um, Tango and Cash, mm -hmm. and it's another one of those examples uh, where I was, you know, um, wait, waiting desperately for a score album to be released, and you know, several years later, I think in two thousand six, it finally was released. And after Tango and Cash, I believe it was, you made the um, decision to return to Germany. Um, could you perhaps give me some insight on that transition Hollywood back to Germany and what prompted you to make that decision? It had to do with family planning, to be honest with you. I said I, uh, this was the time, Tango and Cash was the time where, where my first daughter was born. Mm -hmm. And actually when I did Tango and Cash, I had her like a little toddler um, uh, in in Los Angeles together with my former wife. So we said, "Do we really want to live here with a kid?" You know. So 
um, this was one decision. I said, no, I think we, I think it's we are better off to to really raise the kid, and we 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 wanted more, and then we got more kids. Um, to raise the kids back in Germany, we are, you know, you have to know that we, we are living in a in a great environment, a little outside Munich. That's where I was. That's where I was born and raised. That's where my parents lived. Where my where my whole family lives and still lived and still lives. So um, we made a decision, uh, and we said we're gonna go back. the The decision helped, of course, one fact that. Um, the only movies I got offered back then were like cop movies. Mm-hmm. I I tried very hard to to get get a job uh, for an animated movie, for a Disney movie or whatever. But my agent and and the entire industry always kept saying, "Nah, he's not. He's he cannot do that. He's he, we we just know him for his work in in cop movies and in hard driving action movies." So this is all. This were all the offers I got. And of course, um, at some point, I mean. The, the the last one I, I did back then was 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 cuffs with Christian Slater, yeah, and it was another cop story. So it's just you know it gets it gets very redundant, and you and you get tired of 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 doing all these this, this cop movies, and um, of course, um, Beverly Hills Cop got copied um, multiple times, you know, like in in, in different uh, stories, and of course the time for. The time for for synthesizer music um, in conjunction with 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 um, action movies was was outdated. It was done, and I I didn't I actually didn't find a new way to to uh, to do something different because I mean you had this these instruments, these new instruments, and the trend went back to, to the, the big orchestras, and of course all of a sudden like like Hans Zimmer got very fash- fashionable with with his his kind of work. Yeah, which is great, which is which is really great work. And he he was at, at that time he was just the, the 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 more current and the more modern guy than I was, you know. So I said, well, anyway, I'm I have to go back. I have to just take a rest and have to have to to breathe again. And who knows? I I'll, I'll be back, but but um, I need some time off and do something different. And of course, projects like Petro Boys also helped, of course, to get over that. And that's these were things which I did back in Germany. And um, I, I put the, the movie business aside for some for quite a while, and worked on on, on different on different things, and that definitely helped my my uh, to widen my horizon, my musical horizon, and um, it um, it was a decision which I don't regret to this moment because the kids are now grown up, they have grown up at our compound, and they are. They, they're, they're well educated and they are in the world now and and um, I think I made a right decision um, so basically um, you were also um, typecast pretty strongly back in these days which which is right. yeah which which is something that basically happens happens all the time and I think many many artists um, suffer from that greatly of course you can't help it I mean this is Hollywood um, you are famous for one one um, style, and then they, they tell you that's the only thing you can do. I mean, it's it's uh, tragic, but it's the way it is. Um, okay, you just mentioned the um, the Patcher Boys, and actually, I was I was going to ask you something about that as well. It, we, you did it in 1990. Um, you produced their album Behavior, mm-hmm. um, which is I think still regarded as uh, one of their finest albums. Um, mm-hmm. 
did those two, uh, well, Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe approach you? Did they seek uh, you spe seek out you specifically, or did you contact them because you wanted to work with them? No, they called one day, and um, my first question was, "Why you need? Why why do you want to have a, th a third producer?" They said, "Yeah, you know what we, the our." Our technique and our, and our uh, uh, um, way to produce records is that we always do something new. I said, well, obviously. And um, I liked the work of the Pet Shop Boys. You know, I liked what they did with Liza Minnelli, with Dusty Springfield, and what they did for themselves. I mean, this is all great work. So they said, um, and this time we do something completely new. We, do, we only use old vintage synthesizers. Mm -hmm. None of the of the the modern stuff is gonna be on. This was the first days of of uh, like plug-in synthesizers, you know, and things like this. So that we want to go back to the to the way of of um, analog vintage synthesizer programming. And you're our guy. So I said, well, I still have lots of the the vintage synthesizers back home. And I was thrilled by the idea because it's my that's my piece of cake. I know how to do that. And as a matter of fact, I, I even bought more of the old stuff, especially for that recording. And actually, I'm still using it. And this was, this was the sound of, of behavior. And um, it, like you said, it was one of the most highly acclaimed work they ever did. And I'm pretty proud that I was part of it. Great. Um... As I mentioned in my introduction, Harold, um, this year your autobiography will be released uh, and it's going to be called Grüß Gott, Hollywood, Mein Leben zwischen Heimat und Rock'n'Roll. Translate, yeah. Translated basically, Hello Hollywood, My Life Between Home and Rock'n'Roll. Rock um, when did you make the decision um, to, to write the book? Well, actually, this, this I... I, I didn't didn't make the decision um, all by myself. This was this was initiated um, uh, through my through my partner in life, Birgit, and she said you have to write your autobiography because you know whenever I'm I'm telling stories when we when we sit in the evening, um, I have a great memory and um, so I can recall stories from that time um, on the fly. So she she said you have to write your autobiography. It's so interesting. Plus the fact that that um, I'm not your typical like um, LA rock and roll kid. I have uh, total different tasks. You know, I'm I'm uh, on on one hand I'm like the title says, Cruise Scott Hollywood, and this this says so much. It's uh, my life. It's my my way of life. It's my my uh, my my uh, my my. Uh, uh, Let's say my it is it is uh, to love nature on one hand and to live a total different life than the music life on one hand and then go back to to Hollywood and live crazy Hollywood life you know and 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 live up what Hollywood is known for the, like fast working and back then of course party hard you know this was this <laughs> were the two, this were the two the two things and and um, there's so much to tell and so I finally agreed to to do the autobiography right so um, basically fans can look forward to quite a few inside stories i think about your hollywood days and work oh, yeah. with other musicians recording artists and also directors then right 
Oh yeah, definitely. This is the, this is gonna be the, the the story and like stories of Bruckheimer Simpson and Marty Brest when they when they came into into the studio and and turned my work around. <laughs> this is all documented in the autobiography. Great. Um, <coughs> it's gonna be released in September. That's correct. Yeah, September eighth is the release date. Okay. Um, it's gonna be released in in the states, in Germany, and also uh, across Europe. Are there any plans? The plans first. The first release is in in the German spoken territories like mm -hmm. Germany, Austria, Switzerland, mm -hmm. and we have the we have an English version finished already. Actually, as a matter of fact, I wrote the autobiography in English mm -hmm. together with a ghostwriter, and um, so the first uh, manuscript was the English manuscript. Then we had it translated into into German. So actually, we have the the uh, we have the English version finished mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's um, currently negotiated to, to bring it out, I, I guess it's going to be next year. And um, so it is going to be a worldwide release. Great. Um, since you have well worked with so many people and I think you have an enormous amount of stories to tell, um, how, many, how many pages uh, Will will there be? Is it like a thick, like a massive? Yeah, it's, it's 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 pretty substantial. It's a it's a it's going to be a hardcover, obviously, and it's mm -hmm. going to be it has almost three hundred pages. Great. And if I would have continued to tell stories, it would have probably been five hundred pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of, do you believe that? You know, well, you will tell several inside stories, like I just told. Do you think that you? You um, on purpose um, cut out certain certain stories because you felt you might have you know told something which is uh, you know offensive or maybe maybe should not see the light of day. If I may ask that question. Well, of course you have you have you have uh, you have uh, um, um, stories and anecdotes which are which I would call uh, classified. You, you, you're not yeah. talking about uh, certain things, so. It's um, and of course you write it. And these days, you know, this uh, it's it's all a legal question as well. So you're not, so you you have you have a, a book overlooked by a by like a legal department of a of a publishing company, yep. and they will tell you you can't write that. Or did you uh, do you have permission to write that from the from the people you're writing about? So you have to be careful to not insult somebody, right, yep. or anybody. So of course we went through that and. Um, um, but I think we had a pretty pretty uh, clear view of what we want to tell and what we don't want to tell at the, at the beginning. So not a lot of stories got really cut out. Maybe some got a little modified to, uh, to, to uh, fulfill the needs of the legal departments. But basically, I'm, I'm not a bad guy, you know, it's, it's, and that's a bad story. So it's not, it's, so, it's, uh, so it, is, it, is a, it is the story and... and um, it's a it's a it's a true story, and it is um, uh, nothing I really have to cut out. You know? Also, this year, I think in August, um, your new musical will premiere, which yes. is called yeah, which is called the Oktoberfest, the musical and almost true story. Um, right. How long did you actually work on this project, and what can we, what can the fans expect? Yeah, it's a it's a total different fall tomorrow. It's a it is. Um, I mean, I wrote a musical back then uh, in in Vienna, yeah. um, which was my which was my actually my second musical work. The first one I did was with Hildegard Kneef, but um, 
what we what we do now is a is a very very hard driving very very funny story about the Oct- Oktoberfest. And when when I got approached with the project, um, and the producer said, "Well, you know, we have a we have a writer. We might have a writer. It's Phil Lasetnik. Um He worked for Disney, um, and he wrote a couple of really iconic scripts like uh, Mulan, Pocahontas, and The Prince of Egypt. So." And we, we have him on board, and we need, a, need the composer, and we are thinking about you. And then I said, pretty arrogant, I said, well, look, um, who else could do it? I mean, I have to, I have to do it, because um, I'm, first of all, I'm a native Bavarian. I'm a I'm native Munich kid. Second, I'm, I'm uh, quite successful in international markets. So I know the Bavarian folklore. I know the rock and roll side, I know, I know about musicals, I can write a musical, so whom else would you take? Um, you need a Bavarian guy, don't you? So that, yeah, we need a Bavarian guy, it's, it probably helps. So, I, so I, um, to make a long story short, I got the job. So I started, what's, but what are you doing with a music like that? Are you just doing umta music, or what's, what's, what is, what's it going to be? So I met Phil Lasetnik, and we, we sat there for some while, and we said, how do we start this whole thing? And we started with a visit in the Nymphenburg Castle in Munich, and we looked at the Schönheiten Gallery, the, the Gallery of Beauties. You know, when King Ludwig I had his uh, 36 paintings by Carl uh, Josef Stieler, the, the court painter. Yeah. And we looked at all these women, and we said, "Well, that's definitely an, an aspect of of the story. You have to you have to show the the the, the girlfriends of Ludwig, right?" And so we started to intensify our thoughts. Whom are we getting in, into this, this gallery of beauties? And of course, um, a, a glamorous figure back then was Lola Montes. Um, she was, she was um, the, the, the mistress of, of, of Ludwig. So it's a very, it's a very um, sizzling story. So Philip came up with the idea, you know, we have to have, of course, on one hand, we have to have like, the Umta music. We have to have like Bavarian um, uh, folklore music at one point, but then, of course, what are we doing? We are telling a story. We are telling the story of the Oktoberfest, and that's, this was the this was the, the, the great idea Philip had um, to 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 uh, create two 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 stories, two parallel stories. First of all, you entertain the people with. With of course you 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 serve you serve them up a beer and you give them a pretzel, on one hand and then <clears throat> on the other hand, you have the, the the story told, and Philip I mean he's that's 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 he's really great at he came up with the idea that we have two figures in the in the in the play, one is the producer of the show, and the other one is a MC a a a, um, a master of ceremonies. Which the producer hires, and the producer thinks that the, the MC thinks I have to just tell the fun story, and the, the only thing we want to have this evening is we just we just have have fun, we drink beer, and we sway, and we have a good time. And she says, no, 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 no. I hired you to tell the people the true story. So what's the outcome of that is that the story is gon- is gonna be told, and it's of course sometimes shifted to a almost true story. That's why it's called the almost true story. So it's very clever written and, and we are just in the middle of rehearsals 
and uh, and we have a wonderful director, Madeleine Dam, who uh, who really knows her, her business, and uh, she's doing the choreography as well. And whenever I come home <coughs> in the evening after the rehearsals, it's a it's a joy and it's it's very very pleasant to to look back the day what she did and um i i'm pretty sure we get a really really cool show together um harold your first musical um which was uh, also played in vienna made it to a to an album certain selections were released on cd um do you think the same is going to happen with this musical that certain parts will be released on cd or maybe even dvd I'm pretty sure about that. As a matter of fact, we had talks <clears throat> um, recently about that. Um, of course, when we when we put out a soundtrack, uh, and we would call it, of course, the original cast album, mm -hmm. um, it has to sound great. You know, there are so many. The Vienna, the Vienna original cast album we did back then was basically we really we really did all the we did all the the orchestral stuff, you know, and um, so it's like a more or less a live performance, right? But with this one here, because it, it has so many so many different um, styles of music, I probably would, would do like a fusion of, of um, our orchestra and some studio work as well, and then of course have our original actors on, on, that, on that record. But it's, um, it's going to be done, and um, I'm, I'm not sure if we have it ready by, by, the, by the opening night, but it's going to be pretty close to the opening night we have a soundtrack album out great um okay and now we've spoken about many things uh, in the past and also current current uh, projects um the release is coming up the premiere of the musical also your uh, autobiography um are there any future plans projects you've already mapped out um if you can talk about it <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> when you do a musical, and you do it like 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 we we did, and and I mean, being being very very quick in in uh, in what you're doing, I think the, the the next thing what I would love to do is do another musical. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly if we if we would be successful with this one, we would do one anyway. I have another one in the in the in the pocket where I have the script, which I might do next. Then there is going to be a best a best of album. Which is going to be released um, um, actually um, parallel to the release of the autobiography, mm -hmm. and that's an interesting, unique album because it's a—it's <clears throat> not just your 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 regular best of album. It's what I call a composer's cut album. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you you will you will you will you will hear um, of course a couple of of uh, my my hits of Donna, for example. Hot stuff is going to be on. But then you then you probably will hear a couple of new versions of if, uh, Axel F is going to be a new version. I'm I'm I, I did a, a couple of months ago. Okay. Then you will hear the the, the theme out of Fletch, which is going to be re-recorded. Oh great! And me Memories from Top Gun is going to be recorded, and of course with a real guitar then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we might even have the 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 opportunity to re to release a a non heard version of of the heat is on or shakedown you oh, know great, great so it's gonna be like a composer's cut things you you, you have you have in, in movie business you have the director's cut you have the 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 cut a director wants to hear or to to see his movie and um which he couldn't do for 
for several reasons, like um, time considerations or yep. taste considerations, marketing considerations or whatever. But the, the director's cut is always like something that the, the director always wanted to do, you know. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've um, invented the word um, composer's cut because, of course, with film music, you are tied into timing and tied into certain bars, certain scenes, and you cannot do what you really wanted to. So, but with a with a record like that, you can do whatever you want, you know. So that's that's what I'm gonna do, and it's gonna be it's gonna be uh, released through my own label. Okay, and it's it's gonna be available um, when we have the the uh, autobiography released. Yeah. Right. That's really an interesting project to have this composer's cut idea. That's really, really good news. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Shakedown, I actually forgot to, to mention that. Um, Shakedown is one of my um, favorite movie songs, actually. I think uh, it's, it opened the movie um, when, when the main credits of Cup 2 start. It starts right. the film in such an energetic way. And um, it was even Oscar-nominated, that song. Mm -hmm. Back then, it's a really great song. Thank you. Oh yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harold, I I think I have run out of questions. Um, <laughs> uh, I would really like to to thank you for um, your time, for taking time out of your busy schedule. I really enjoyed the interview, and I hope you did too. Was my pleasure. Yeah, I'm. It was. It is an honor to be. To be able to speak to you and thank you so much for your time <music>